This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of June 8th, 2023. Our subject. Oh, well, first off, I'm Charles Hayne. I'm here with Jason Hellerman. Hey. And Gigi Hawkins. Hello. Our subject this week is transitioning roles within the film industry. It is a thing that people do and want to do. And how do you do it? And what are the costs and benefits of doing it? So the first thing, you know, if you're not already in the industry, don't climb a ladder. You don't want to get to the top of that classic advice from the English office, right? Like you want to get on the ladder that you want to climb and getting on the wrong ladder and then being like, oh, and I'll be able to switch later is very tricky. However, many people get on a ladder climb it for a while and decide they want to move to a different ladder and it's fine. Try and avoid it if you can, but if you got to do it, it happens. I, I was recently uh, reading a book on business accounting and I learned that the very term multi-hyphenate, which is like a very common term now for like many people have many things came from the film industry in the seventies. Like it started as a film industry term and then it sort of spread out to the rest of the world, which I had no idea because People in the film industry would like start as writers and then they'd add directing or they'd start as an actor and then they'd add producing or whatever. And it is a thing where as you go along, I know a lot of people who were DPs, then directors, then became showrunners. Uh, I know people who like started in Steadicam and pivoted over. And the reason why is when you reach a certain level, it is a relationship-based industry and the People you're building relationships with as a high-end steady cam op, as a high-end DP, are often the same people who are doing hiring or collaborating with directors and producers. So it makes sense. The first thing I'd kick off with, and then I'll open it up to Jason and Gigi, is the higher you climb, the easier it is to hop to other verticals. It is very hard. If you're mid-level up the art department ladder and you try and jump to another ladder, you're probably going to be starting back at the bottom. If you've made it to the top of a ladder, it is easier to move to the other ladders. It's still difficult, but it's easier. And that can be tricky. Once you've, re- if you're halfway up a ladder and you're like, oh man, I actually don't want to be a production designer. That actually doesn't sound fun to me anymore. I wish I had climbed writing instead. 
if you haven't achieved, if you're not swimming in the circles where you're meeting those higher end producers, your 10 years in art department doesn't actually help you that much, which is a bummer, I have to say. But yeah, Jason, Gigi, you guys have some other experiences with this. Yeah. When starting out as, you know, indie scrappy director, writer, I was so wary of wearing the producer hat or even calling myself a producer because I had come from this career where I was on the business side of the creative and I had been put into that box. So I was terrified that if I even said that I was producing something that I would get put into that box again and have the creative taken away from me. I eventually watched the Beatles documentary and saw how Paul keeps everyone together and is like, come on, guys, we have to do this. And I was like, oh, maybe maybe I'm a Paul and I can just sort of like accept that you have to be a producer and uh, especially while you're directing and, and coming up this way. But I did take a job as an assistant to a producer and spent five months learning so much about the industry and that was invaluable. But I think there came a time where somebody was like, wait, what? You don't want to produce? And I was like, no, I want to write and direct. I thought I said that. And oh, you, you've you seen me as a producer this whole time. So I was kind of putting myself in this box. And the crazy, but I think smart thing that I did was when an opportunity arose for me to pursue my career as a writer, getting into a lab, I actually left that job because I saw what I kept my eye on the prize. And I, to Charles's point, was able to identify what the latter was. So I I think I was at that early stage and was able to make that leap. And unfortunately, I I wasn't high enough on the ladder to make that career transition, which is one of the reasons that I'm particularly interested in this. But I I have to say, I haven't seen people at that mid-tier make the leap. It's only when they're like very high up in the department and then they go and make something separately and prove that they can do it. There is a superpower, though, that you have if you know everything about, say, props or everything about, say, editing, you know, our interview with Kabir, the TV director who has directed over 46 episodes of TV. He started as an editor. And I think that, you know, if you are, if you ascend to the top and then start to make that, make it known that you want to be doing something else, you can leverage your superpower from that initial ladder climb. I feel like I've probably talked about my origin enough on on the website, but I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast. Uh, And Gigi, I just had uh, dinner a couple of weeks ago and talked about this, but I started as an assistant, worked my way up from a runner at Scott Free. So just driving around town to then becoming an assistant uh, to a producer there. And then he went off and opened his own wing at Sony and I went with him and was his assistant for a while. Then I became story editor, which is just like all the scripts would be sent to me. I'd organize them in files. I was in charge of all the coverage that was on them. And then eventually uh, became a creative executive. So like you're starting to take meetings with, uh, you know, writers and directors, you're sort of the lowest level executive possible. Uh, And then in the middle of all that had sold the screenplay and then just decided to step away from that life uh, and pursue writing. And I think a lot of like the ability to pursue writing uh, post-selling something obviously is much easier, but also like I knew agents around town. I knew, you know, like who called in and who I thought was good on the phone or like who I thought pitched their clients well. So when I was 
picking agents and managers. I was like, oh, I like these people because I've heard them go to bat for other people. You know, I also was able to talk to peers in that situation and be like, hey, do you also like these people? You know, is this just a, a performance they put on the phone for my boss who's very powerful, but maybe your boss is less so. And like, what's the what's your feeling there? Uh, you know, one thing I've never talked about is that after Shovel Buddies and I'm off making movies and you have a couple of dry years where a bunch of stuff falls apart. And I had a huge movie that uh, fell apart tw- twice, you know, heartbreaking. I did creep my way back to possibly becoming an executive again. Went in an interview, got hired as an executive at a different company. And then the next day found out no film school was going to pay me uh, to write articles. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I don't want to give up the dream yet. I wound up backing out of that position. So like, I think one thing, you know, you can do is you could always go back, right? As, as long as you have the experience, you have a track record. Um, that was only maybe like a two years or three years removed from my first executive job where I could be like, oh, I went out and not only did I make my own movie, but I was a producer on it. it I had, you know, at least like a marketable experience that I think like looked good to the people who were hiring me. And also like I knew the people I, have a I was question interviewing for. Okay, specifically yeah. about that time yeah. where you were maybe about to go back. How did you feel in that moment? Did you feel like this was uh a step back or a pause or a, you know, I can still learn in this role. Like what was your mindset? Yeah, I think, well, look, you're immediately going to feel like a failure, right? Cause like I, I left to be a writer because I wanted to be a writer. That's all I wanted to do. That's why I'd moved out to Hollywood. I, I was good at, I think the producing creative executive point, because I liked working with writers and directors, you know, I loved having them come in and brainstorm ideas. So it was tough then to maybe like swallow your pride and be like, maybe I need to go back to that. And in my mind, I was, I thought of it as a pause, um, but also had the fear of knowing that like being an executive at a company that wanted to make things. And the place that hired me was for uh, an Academy Award nominated actor. And like, it's going to be a, a, you know, probably like a 70 hour a week job, you know, and that's being generous with (laughs) giving myself a weekend. Um, You know, I, I knew that like the pause would be just hopefully to make more connections, but also like that I wouldn't probably be doing any work for the next couple of years. So the terror and, and the rest of it, but it's also like in Hollywood, the one thing you need is a job, right? You have to pay your rent, you have to do whatever. And when writing sort of dried up and the, I was doing commercials at the time, there weren't that many. Uh, I was like, I need to find a way to have an income. Otherwise, like I'm going to run out of money in a couple of months. And that was like, you know, you, for those many people know, you can't just go apply for writing jobs. Even if you get them, it might take six or seven months to get paid. I was unsure. And then wound up, Perchance meeting Ryan Koo and starting to write blogs for No Film School and was able to bridge the gap. And then I think maybe two weeks after the turning that job down, I wound up getting a huge assignment and then getting getting paid and being able to balance it. But it is that sort of thing where you're kind of going back and forth and unsure what to do. But also like you're developing a network in each specificity, right? So Charles, yeah. Well, one of the beauties of film is that you that you talked about the gap in your resume. I didn't really appreciate, you know, my wife is a normal human who doesn't work in film. And, like, she's concerned about things like gaps in her resume. But, like, in film, no one gives a shit. Like, oh, you went off to write for three years and now you're back to being executive. No one bats an eye. You could be like, oh, I, I spent two of those years working on a shrimp boat or, like, whatever. And no one in film cares at all. And that is, like, we, we're a complicated industry and we have a lot of problems. But, like the beauty of that, the beauty of everybody understanding like, Oh, you were spending three years on screenplays and now you're back to being an executive and no one thinks about it and no one's worried or like offended is like such one of the gifts of this industry. And I do think it is really important to recognize that like that ladder you were climbing gave you the biggest gift in the world, which is a better handle and understanding on 
all of the things that you would need to be a writer. And that was the thing with like climbing other ladders earlier is like so many people I know the first time they met with an agent were like terrified. Whereas like you'd been on the phone with agents for years at that point, you, you knew some agents you liked, you knew what they were like on the phone. You, you had seen them try and do their job. And so your attitude to them and your familiarity with them were much higher. And one of the biggest problems with film is that you do need to kind of get in the mix to really get a handle on it. You need a couple of years of like being on the phone with the people who put these things together. You need a couple of years of like to really get your feet into it, which is why even as much of our work now is remote, like getting to LA or New York, spending a couple of years on a desk, like is still an invaluable thing. And, you know, if you don't know what ladder to climb, the assisting in producing agency world is still the best ladder to just jump on because you will see more of how the levers work than you will in any other world. Yeah. The sausage will be made in front of you for, for better or worse. You know, I think uh, my time as an assistant all the way up was so invaluable for all the things you said. And also just the disillusionment of it's like, it's like working for David Copperfield and knowing how the magic tricks are made and then being like, mm-hmm. okay, like now I need to go out and make uh, somebody disappear and it's you still feed off the magic of the audience, but you also are very confident in that, like, OK, there's a trap door here. You have to step on it. If you don't build that trap door, they won't go away. Like, you know, all the mechanisms you're trying to do. And, and I think for me, just as someone who, you know, like I'll say, like my learning process is just as a human being is like um, I love I think creativity comes naturally, but I think there are practical steps along the way. And I needed to find those practical steps. So it took really I think it's funny, like. It took having that three years where I felt like I was failing at writing all the way back to where I began to learn to then go back to where I began, refocus on every single lesson I had ever learned and be like, oh, actually, like you knew this. This was the ebb and flow. This is why you need a day job. This is why you need something consistent. And, you know, it's been, I think, almost exactly six years close to from that point in my life. Uh, and I I think like six of the best years ever because I was able to like refocus on the lessons I learned or actually like believe that being an assistant wasn't a waste of time. It was actually like the best sort of graduate school for me. And what you speak to about the process of learning how to write, it, it applies to whatever department you're in. There is that gap of, uh, of as Charles mentioned on last week's episode, the cliche regurgitation that you are putting out as you're learning and growing as a director, a cinematographer, where you're still finding your footing. I do think that there is also power in, you know, building this network, being in the mix, and then just starting to say, oh, I am also doing insert what you want to be doing full-time and paid for. We spoke recently to Wale Oyijide, who is comes from the costume design world and the fashion world. And he famously has designed costumes for Black Panther and then sort of accidentally made his first feature that premiered at Sundance. But what he carried with him, and and he's been a No Film School listener for so long, was the confidence of going out there and trying something and being okay with learning and that gap, that gap. I also think there's an important thing to, it's complicated what we build our identity on. And there's a thing and like, you know, this shows up like I know doctors who think of themselves as doctor first and human second. Like, I don't think this is exclusive to the arts, but I think it is tricky in the arts where a lot of people build a sense of who they are based on what they do for a living. Like I am writer, I am director, I am, you know, and it's, and it, 
separating from that and recognizing that these are all activities we do and roles we play and and creating as a group activity where we choose different roles based on scenarios is, I think, really empowering and freeing. There's a great Jack Cardiff, amazing DP, who also directed for a long time, um, tells this amazing story about how he'd switched from cinematography to directing and he was directing a bunch of movies. Then he had a year where he didn't have a movie lined up and someone offered for him to shoot something. And he called his agent and he was like, well, I'm mostly a director now. And I'm getting offered this cinematography thing. And his agent was like, are you doing anything else? And Jack Cardiff was like, no. And his agent was like, well, maybe you're the director who also still shoots. And then the next 10 years of his IMDb were like shooting a big movie, directing a big movie, shooting a big movie, directing a big movie. Or like James Murrow, for a more recent example, huge Steadicam guy, switched over to cinematography, open range, beautifully shot movie. And then the next 15 years of his resume are like, Steady cam on X-Men and then shooting, uh, you know, crash or something. And he went back and forth for a decade and like, we need to give ourselves the freedom of not saying like, my job is who I am. You are not film director. You are a yeah. person who like directs a movie sometimes and shoots sometimes and writes for a while. And like, you know, hopefully is like a good partner, good child, good parent, you know, like it's all of these things. And it's very hard to do because there's this intense pressure to like build our identity on these external things. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. So funny. I, I uh, had this conversation, almost the exact same conversation with a DP friend of mine who, uh, you know, was, uh, you know, is, is a director, very successful, was offered to shoot second unit for a friend and wouldn't do it for a long time. And then last year was like, oh, I... I want to do it. And I, I asked him, I was like, well, what changed? What changed from you rejecting this notion? And he was just like, I just started thinking of it like no one's going to care. Like no one's going to care that I shot second unit from like a really good friend. Like they're not going to be like, oh, this is going to, you know, ruin your career. You should be seen as a director. And you had a you know movie that opened to hundreds of millions of dollars. It's like, no, I just wanted to shoot second unit for a buddy who was like, can you come on this complicated shoot for me? And I I thought that was really special. And then he wound up DPing his uh, a uh, documentary for him and uh, still directing his own things on the side, still doing whatever. And I was like, yeah, that's so much of what we what you said. Joe. I was like, right. I got your identity is tied into one thing. It's like, I don't want to, you know, I, I was talking to my buddy the other day who had a great idea for a movie. And I was like, oh, I don't want to write it with you. But I'll produce it. like I, I don't need to be the writer on it. You know, like I just like listening to you write it and do whatever. Like, I think we try to hedge. And, and I don't know if it's always like self-inflicted. Sometimes it is Hollywood pushing you to do something where you're like, well, I don't know if I'm needed in that role here, but I do want to be involved. And I think that's something that our generation in Hollywood, I, I think is figuring out more so uh, because we, our own voice gets out there more, right? Because of social media and in, in, in a good way, uh, we're yeah. allowed to tell the world that we're more than just one thing. And and I honestly don't even know if it's us. I and mean, maybe it's a generation underneath this because I still am like, I've got to just be a writer, but also like, I think I do like being involved in other people's stuff. You know, I, I like, I like being, uh, you know, helping and doing stuff. And it's interesting just seeing people who are multi-hyphenate. Uh, I, you know, Bryce Dallas Howard had like a Instagram post. I think that went viral the other day about like why she's decided to be four different things in Hollywood. And 
I think she got dunked on a little bit for just, you know, being a Nepo baby and all those things oh. that people like to dunk on. But I actually like when I read the post, I was like, this is really heartfelt. And it does make sense that like as a woman in Hollywood, she knew that she would be marginalized as an actress, which is why she had to learn to write her own parts to get them. Mm-hmm. And then also direct because people wouldn't be interested in it and also produce to get the money. And I, I thought it was like, yeah, you are right. That like a lot of us are learning to do different things. It doesn't mean you have to be a multi iPhone or do whatever, but it does mean in this in this industry it'd be good to learn at least other practices in case you have to fall back you know i'm working on my website right now like totally rebranding it and uh because in a way it is a business card and there is value in having some kind of label to understand where people can put you in a bucket when they're thinking about things. But, you know, I identify as a writer and a director, but I have my third little label is an audiophile because I love podcasts. I love consuming them. We are here on a podcast geeking out about film. I also do podcast consulting. And um, I shared it with somebody who has a sort of more traditional background, works in the consulting world, is of a different generation. And they were like, what does this even mean? And I was like, it means I like audio, okay? And I like audio and film, and I like this, and I like that. And it kind of like gave me this more of a catch-all that where I don't want to be put in a box. Because I could say podcast consultant. I could say podcast ho- host. Um, And I think that if there's ways that you can put language to either like the types of projects you like to work on or the types of people that you like to work with, or even if you just want to like be telling stories that sort of push the envelope, uh, tell big stories at a local level, I think that, you know, there are ways that you can also sort of categorize yourself, but keep it open so you can be receptive to these different opportunities. But I'm going to actually go out on a limb and say, I think when you are climbing the ladder, it is trickier to be a multi-hyphenate. Mm-hmm. I think once, you know, Jason, your friend who's like a bigger director and like still shooting occasionally. And like, you see that all the time where there's some story of like big Hollywood people where it's like, you know, Tarantino came out and did second unit on Robert Rodriguez as Sin City or whatever. And you're like, okay, but you're all, you, Tarantino's not going to have problems financing his next movie, yeah. whether or not he did second unit for his buddy. But I think when you are climbing the ladder, I actually think there's a lot of strategic benefit in marketing yourself to an individual niche, which doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you are saying I am just X, but from a marketing standpoint, like there was a period in my life where I had four different websites and then I'd meet someone socially, I'd be somewhere and I would find out by conversation in what way they might want, like if mm-hmm. they're a director, they don't need to see my directing work, but they can see my cinematography. They might hire me as a DP, you know? And I think that there is a, like getting to the place where you have one website that shows all of your facets, I think is a little like mid career, late career. I think when you're climbing a ladder, people want to hire a specialist. People want to hire a person who just does the thing and they pay better for a specialist. And so I think it's a tricky thing to navigate and it's a really tricky thing to navigate to bring it back to the original uh, sort of this episode when you're trying to pivot from one thing to another, when you're trying to pivot from I've been a cinematographer for a decade and now I want to start directing more because it's really like, do you have a director slash DP website? My argument has been, and I still kind of think this is true, although I think Gen Z is going to change this. You have a cinematography site and you have a direct and a directing site and they're two different sites and you judge based on conversation and context, which one, which link you are giving people. Gen Z should Gen Z slaps like they are fascinating <laughs> and like, like are willing to build their identity on many different pillars. So the idea of building identity of one thing, but I think unfortunately for now, the boomers are the people who hire everybody 
And, you know, millennials are doing a lot of hiring too. And I think they're more comfortable hiring specialists. I think they want to hire a writer who they think is just a writer. I actually think that that this is such a smart strategic move to have a specific identity that you're putting out there for what you want to be doing. Uh, and this idea of having different websites to just sort of eliminate any of the sort of people putting you in a bucket that is outside of what you actually want to be doing. I think what's key is that whatever it is you want to be doing, you have to be creating a proof of concept or just proof, evidence that you can do it. And to have a website that says you're a cinematographer, you have to have your cinematography work on there. So that might be one of the key takeaways for anyone who is looking to make the move is to get that experience. It sounds obvious, duh, and prove that you can either direct or shoot or do sound or make a badass set. And Getting that experience is something that sometimes takes an investment, whether it's investing in creating your first short or investing your time in working on somebody else's project in a role that you haven't traditionally worked in before. Hollywood in general wants to pigeonhole people because the creative people aren't usually the ones making the decisions, right? It's like, uh, I need to know that you are this genre writer, you know, like if, if you write horror that's the way you get ahead, right? You sell like three or four horror scripts and then you get to a point where you can pivot. And Craig Mazin has a really good um, episode of Script Notes where he talks about just like that one day he went to his agent and was like, I know I've conquered, you know, for lack of a better word, like the comedy space, right? Like I did Identity Thief. I've done all these things. I've done these rewrites for the hangovers. But like, I want to do something else. And then suddenly was like writing Snow White, Snow White and the Huntsman too. You know what I mean? Like, a, like completely away. And then came out with Chernobyl a few years later and now it's like really rebranded himself into this sort of like prestige drama person. And I think that's interesting. You know, one strategy I always think about is like just from being an assistant and whatever is like, uh, I'm always trying to write myself into the next job, right? So it's like become an, enough of a reliable writer who gives good notes and does whatever that like, I think that like, okay, but someone brings me on like, Jason, would you help me produce this? Would you be the, like the, you know, help me work with this filmmaker to do whatever. Great. That's maybe how I write myself into the producing thing. And in terms of directing, which is something I'd like to do. It's like, yeah, you do have to probably make a proof of concept short or do get something going. But like in lieu of that, you also need to write yourself the script. Maybe you're going to direct because someone's not going to give you the other ones. If you can write a script, that's good enough that costs less enough that people are willing to take a chance. You can get like whatever the package is. That's the way to do it. So sometimes it's just be really good at one thing and that will get you to the other ladder, right? It's, it wouldn't, I don't think I could jump from writer to costume designer, you know, but if there's like a close affiliation, maybe I have like a little bit closer of something there. Yeah. I mean, the unfortunate truth is that the people who make a lot of these decisions want to see that you've already done the thing that they want you to do. Uh, I have a friend who directs commercials and he does uh, dog spots, a lot of pet food stuff. And he's like, I'm a small dog guy and I can't book big job, big dog jobs. Like if there is a job that's big dogs, they will not look at me because I do small dogs. And like, that's insane to people outside of the film industry. Cause they're like, well, you've done commercials. Surely you're up for car spots and you're up for pet. And it's like, no, 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 no. He's not even up for big dogs, little dogs. And that's so true in writing. It's so that. true in all of these things. So if you want to get to those other things, you have to climb to the top of the ladder. Craig Mason has to climb to the top of the comedy ladder, which he did. And then he gets to be mm -hmm. like, no, I'm going to do other things. You get, you have to climb to the top of the, the pile of small dogs to get at the big dogs. 
Um, that analogy ended up working out much better than I thought it would. In the end. So yeah, it. it's a tricky thing jumping from ladder to ladder in film. And let's talk to someone else who made a career transition. Hi, I'm Gigi Hawkins with No Film School. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I had a very LA cinematic moment this morning, driving down the road, and then a flaming hot bus side came up next to me. And I was like, God, this, the marketing team, the brand team, whoever came up with this poster needs an award because this is iconic. I love it. Yay. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the film and thank you so much for joining us. We are a podcast for emerging filmmakers. And this week we've been talking a lot about career transitions. So it's perfect that you have a, a film about somebody transitioning in their career, but also that you directed a film and you've made some amazing transitions in your career. It's yourself. So thank you. I am so proud of it. I'm so excited. And I love talking to your audience of like people who go, how do I do this? When do I, how do I do this? What do I do? It's like, this is, there's such a lesson to be learned in Richard's story of like butting up against the system. You know what I mean? Like he, Mm -hmm. he didn't have a protocol and it was like, that was his superpower. And I think filmmaking is very similar. Like there's not a recipe, right? Just do it and you learn by doing. And so I'm very excited for the movie to come out and for everybody to watch it. I'm curious, when did you get the directing bug? Well, I've been directing for over a decade. Yeah. Um, People think I'm an actor turned director, but I'm actually always been a director producer turned actor. Like I, I wanted to, I love the business side of our industry and, and I like to be in control. Mm -hmm. And I think as an actor, you don't really have a lot of control, you know? Right. I just show up, say your lines. You don't edit. You don't cast. You don't write. So vulnerable. It's like such a Uh, difficult job to just show up and not have that control. That and like if somebody, if you do, if you do a movie and it's badly directed, people don't go, God, that movie was badly directed. They go, oh my God, Evil and Warrior was horrible in that movie. Right. So you're like super vulnerable. But no, for me, I've always been a director producer. And then, you know, had the success I had with, with acting, but always produced and started really directing about 10 years ago, started with shorts, you know, then got into episodic TV, did half hour, one hour comedy, drama, single cam, multicam, uh, small pilots. Yeah. And that was one thing I did is I touched every rung of the ladder. I really, you know, didn't bite off more that I could chew but at the same time, just did, I just worked. I just put my head down. And one day I woke up and it's been 10 years I've been directing. I mean, it really happened that fast. And so I think work begets work. And, yeah. And anytime you can do it for free, whether you're paid, a student film, your friend wants you to shoot something, like you just do it because you're only going to keep learning and, and, and making mistakes by doing. I think often when we're getting started as as creators, it it feels uncomfortable to not be fully in in control as well. This is like a running theme. But it, as you're iterating and as you're going and as you're experiencing this these different styles, every single one is different. So having that learning cap is absolutely critical, get, depending on each project. So one of the things that I thought was so well executed in Flaming Hot was the fact that it was a story about business. 
And to establish stakes in a story about business is really tough. And I think we've seen a lot of shoots and misses in this in recently. And when I was watching the other the other day, I was like, oh, this is like this is a movie story because there are stakes. Because we are here with Richard and the stakes are his family and his livelihood. It's so so great. I never set out to make a movie about the Flaming Hot Cheeto. Mm -hmm. Like the minute I learned about Richard's story, I knew that's what I wanted to make. I wanted to make the real life story of Richard Montañez. That to me was interesting. His life incredibly interesting. So the stakes are high because we're talking about family and love and, you know, poverty and struggle. And Mm -hmm. those are universal themes. And then it's like, oh, yeah. And this guy had a hand in, you know, making the number one snack in the world, which is a multi-billion dollar product. So I'm glad you feel those stakes. So I think to get an audience on board with, with Richard's story, obviously, like casting the family and creating a family that we're sort of immediately with and and with really quickly is such a it's so critical to pulling off this film. So, can you talk to me about how you put together this cast yeah. and and how you worked with the family to develop this dynamic that you know then it felt like we were you know just yeah. rooting for them immediately. Yeah. I mean, first of all, Jesse Garcia, who plays Richard, does such a phenomenal job at at making Richard super relatable. I don't want to, I don't like to say likable, but you relate to his struggle immediately. You're like, yeah. I I get him, I get his struggle, I've been there. And you're you just like, you know, right from the beginning, you're rooting for him. And so I think that's, you know the power of Jesse Garcia and Annie, you know, Judy wasn't in the original script. And once we met the real Richard and Judy, Linda, the writer and I were, we walked out of that meeting. We're like, Oh God, this is a love story. This is a love story. And Judy's super important. And Judy immediately became the heart of the film. And so it's really fun to see both of them, you know, do their, their acting thing. But it's also important to know, like, when we were writing the script, you know, I remember the studio's note was like, we got to get to the factory faster. We got to get to the factory faster, like before page 30. And I was like, mm-hmm. no, we have to set up the family, his childhood, his relationship with his father, how he met Judy. Like mm-hmm. if we don't set all of that up, you're not going to roof later in the factory. We really need to earn the back end of the third act, you know? And so I'm glad that I kind of stuck to that because it really pays off. Once you're invested in his family and with his dad, you know, his upbringing, his gangbanging years, like you need to know all of that. So if you don't know where he was, you don't appreciate where he ended up. Yeah. It's it's a it's a character arc that that feels earned, and again, that's why I keep coming back to this idea that it it has that it's 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 threading the needle that a lot of business films don't have, and I think we we hear a lot of pushback, especially in the emerging space of like you know this is not a story or this is not a movie, and it sounds like sticking to your gut feeling of like we need to establish early on these different elements of his past for that payoff like that that i think is something it's it seems like probably because you've you're you've worked in on so many stories and scripts and films you've been able to sort of internalize that 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it is, there's so many, you know, so much work. And so I think the trick to a lot of what you're talking about is I just surround myself with people who are smarter than me. And then I go, okay, how are we going to do this time lapse? You know, 10, we jumped 10 years. Mm-hmm. This is what I would like to accomplish. I want, I want 10 years to pass. I want to see the factories losing jobs, but I want him to be in the exact same spot, but he now has aged 10 years. So his hair is different. His uniform's different. Da, da, da. How do we do that? And I just throw it to the team and the production designer has an idea. My DP has an idea. You know, the costume designer's like, what if, what if it does this? And I can make a costume that like does it. I mean, it is, it is endless when you have, you know, 10 brains are better than one. Yeah. And I filmmaking in particular is a collaborative, creative medium. And so not having an ego, really valuing the team's opinion that you hired, you know, I think all of this, you know, these aspects you're talking about was like, I, I had a vision mm-hmm. for the movie. And everybody I placed around me shared that vision. And so I valued their input, you know? One of the most distinct things that feels specific to this film was, I don't know if you'd call it magical realism, but the... Fantasy. Would you call it that? The fantasy sequences. The fantasy sequences, which... Can you, at what point did that become part of the story? And what was the discovery of that? Well, you know, when I learned about Richard's story... I I went down like a rabbit hole of his speeches. I read t- both of his memoirs. I saw home videos and I was like, God, he's so funny and witty. Like, I like his voice, his tone. Mm-hmm. The movie has to be in his POV. It has to be in his perspective. This is the only way I see the movie being done. And because we did that, it gave us the creative freedom to, for any, anything goes, because it's whatever we were in his mind. And so I remember Richard telling me a story about he thought boardrooms at companies were a room where they stored boards and he didn't know what a boardroom was. And I was like, oh my God, that's so funny. And then I said, oh, wouldn't it be funny if we did a boardroom scene where everybody was speaking like a cholo because that's how Richard spoke. So he thought everybody speaks like this. And that's where all of this fantasy sequences were born. Like, what if he beat the shit out of that guy at the factory? But then he's like, no, I'm just kidding. I wanted to, I didn't. And so it really allowed us to play with what he thought. He really thought this happened. His meeting with Enrico, he was like, I felt like I was the most important person in the room. And like, no, the reality was you weren't. (laughs) And so those are people's favorite scenes. And, And interestingly enough, for all those filmmakers out there, if you have a device like that, like mm-hmm. we had sequences, I had to introduce it early to let you know the language of the film, right? Yeah. The language we'll be speaking. And so as we were playing with the film and the edit, we were going to move something. And I was like, no, we can't because now we introduce a fantasy sequence way too late. People are going to be right. like, wait, what is that? I haven't even seen that. And I'm already one hour into the movie. So you, if you have a device like that, you've got to set it up early. You've got to set up the rules of your world mm-hmm. right up top. Is there a voiceover? Do you have flashbacks? Are there fantasy sequences? Like what, what is this? And so because we were 100% in the POV of Richard, I think, people go along for the ride on those fantasy sequences. They're they're brilliant. And you the boardroom sequence is one of my favorite things. <laughs> it's I just such a Tony, Tony Shalhoub did such a good job. And he, 
happened the first day. And he was like, what am I saying? I'm like, you got to memorize this. It's going to be, just trust me. And he totally trusted me. And I was like, I don't know why he's trusting me, but okay. (laughs) It's, It's great. And I think that I'm so glad that you followed that story instinct, director instinct. And oh, that, it's just an iconic scene. It's like, you know, when you see it, you're like, this is going to be something that people will be referencing in the future. Everybody, everybody it's like the, the highest rated uh, in focus groups are those scenes. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Well, congratulations. I'm so excited for this to be out in the world and I can't wait to see what you make next. Thank you, Eva. Thanks so much for, for talking with me about the film. It was so fun to make. And there's so much behind the scenes of the making of. So we'll be sure to give you guys links because it is truly fascinating. And you guys should hear some some podcasts with a DP because it's oh, yeah. his approach and, and our prep for this movie was truly a lesson in film school. Well, definitely. Well, we need it. We're no film. I didn't go to film school. Yeah. And so I love that, you know, your podcast is about that. Like you learn by being on a set. You mm-hmm. learn by and so I'm not saying don't go to film school. I'm just saying, you know, if you see what I did with this film, you're going to, I use Desperate Housewives as my film school. I use yeah. anytime I was on set as my film school. So any opportunity you have to learn, use it, use it and, and just ask questions. There's no dumb question. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for making your own film school and empowering us as well. Thank you. All right. Well, that was great. Uh, I'm Charles Hayne. I'm on the social medias at Mastodon. I'm Gigi Hawkins. I'm on the social medias at Lost in Graceland and at ggihawkins.com. I'm Jason Hellerman. I'm at Jason Hellerman on both Instagram and Twitter. Feel free to reach out. We're always happy to get your comments and questions. <laughs> <laughs>